0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode is brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Check it out at boomboxgifts.com. I'm excited to be here today with Lydia Finney. She is the Managing Director, Global Head of Strategic Partnerships at Christie's. As lead benefit auctioneer of the firm, she has led auctions for more than 600 organizations. She's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Vanity Fair, Vogue, Town & Country, and many other publications. Graduate of C1E University and originally from Louisiana, Lydia currently lives in New York City with her husband and three children. The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, Command an Audience and Sell Your Way to Success is her first book. Welcome, Lydia. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So can you please tell listeners what your new book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, is about? Absolutely. So The Most Powerful Woman in the
1: Room is You is a story about my 20-year career at Christie's Auction House. But it's more than a story. It's really a lot of stories about life lessons learned through being on stage for almost 16 years as an auctioneer. And a lot of these stories, as I realized and as I was writing this book, a lot of the stories really apply to things that I've learned over the course of my career, but they were things that I wish someone had told me very early on in my career. And that's really what the book ended up being, which is not actually what I thought it was going to be when I started. And so I think more than anything, it's just a fun read about a 20-year career with a lot of life lessons woven in.
0: And it's so neat for me to be interviewing you because so much of the time in the book you're referencing your career, especially your onstage stage. Portion of the career when you go to different events and raise money for charities as an auctioneer, and I've been in the crowds and seen you like over the years many times. So it's like always what you know. You always wonder like, oh, what's, what's How your story? They get there. Yeah. So now I actually have your story right here next to me. So. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Your book has really great advice, and not just sort of the generalized advice you might get from some businessy books or even like self-helpy type books, but specific actionable tips. So I was like underlining as I went the whole time. So some of the tips you gave. And some of them sound general, but you build them up with like specific examples afterwards, so it makes them very user-friendly. So like telling everyone and anyone your life goals, sell as yourself, hard work and practice will get you what you want in life, Negotiate what you deserve or you won't be compensated adequately. Ask others who have achieved what you want and how they got there. This is a good one. Turn your computer to face the wall when you're on an important call so you don't get distracted. Absolutely. Write thank you notes, which I used to be so good at and I've like really gotten bad lately, which is terrible. <laughs> so I was interested stylistically when I read it. Did you consider, and maybe this is what you were just referencing, did you consider making it just about like having bold tips with little paragraphs under, because the way you have it, it's all woven in, like you said, like a story. Yeah, like, and you have to kind of find them, find the nuggets in the, <laughs> <laughs> just sort of find it. I I grew up in the South.
1: I grew up in Louisiana, and storytelling is so much a way. That people relate. My dad is a trial lawyer, and as a result, everything he tells, he tells in the form of a story. And so it's sort of up to you as to how you digest it or how you take it and then run with it over life. And I feel like that's kind of the way I wanted people to see this as well. Because as you said, a lot of these tips people have heard before. I mean, I'm not the first person who will tell you that you're going to learn through rejection or failure. It's written on every poster board that you can see. But I wrote the story of the third chapter or the fourth chapter, where I talk about rejection in the form of a story. And, you know, I started off small. I was I was rejected early on in an, in an acapella singing group. And, you know, everybody's been there. Everybody has been through something that seemed really heartbreaking and, and heart-wrenching at the time. And then you get over it and you realize that, that wasn't so bad. You know, it's still still painful, it's still embarrassing, but it wasn't so bad. And then the next time it happens, you draw from that and remember it. And so I remember, you know, I I was rejected from Hydrox the first two times and then ultimately made it into the singing group. But then I got rejected from my first choice college, which seemed like it was going to be a slam dunk. And I remember being, I was at boarding school, and so you sort of are processing this without your parents in front of you. You know, they're a phone call away. And so I remember sitting outside and crying and thinking, I've been through this before. I've been actually on this wall. I've been seated here crying. It was for Hydrox first time. And I lived through that, and it was okay. And so that was really why I wanted the story to start out small, because at the end, you know, I'm on stage with Bruce Springsteen getting rejected in front of 6,000 people. And what does that feel like? Well, it feels pretty painful at the time, but at the same time, having been through smaller rejections, it's actually not that painful, because you realize you just sort of come back
0: stronger every time. That's awesome. It's, I feel like some of these formative moments, especially for my kids when I watch it, mm-hmm. like, this is going to help you later. I know, <laughs> you know, like, it's so true. Don't, you can cry all you want.
1: But. <laughs> I had a friend who is one of four children, and I remember— she said to me once, she was fired from a job, and she's she just has an incredible resilience about her. And she said that her parents, you know, she's like, if I call my parents right now, they would say, well, too bad for them. They're missing out on a real amazing woman or something like that. And I remember thinking, like, how amazing to be able to turn that around so quickly and make it about somebody else's loss and your gain because you're getting this next adventure in your life and they're losing out on you.
0: And what a great way to live life. Totally. Love that. And speaking of like role models, you have a lot of quotes and passages written by other high power women throughout Mm -hmm. from an Olympic athlete to Martha Stewart, a lot of CEOs of different various businesses, Barbara Corcoran, Shark Tank, (laughs) magazine editors. Were there any tips that they gave you that you found surprising or you weren't really expecting? Anything you've really taken out of what they added to your book that's helped you? Well, I think with the case studies, there certainly are people
1: who are at the top of their game, like a Martha Stewart or a Nina Garcia. But there were also a lot of people that I just knew Mm -hmm. in my life. Or I reached out to friends and said, do you know somebody who's just killing it in their job? Not necessarily somebody that everyone has heard of, but someone you just think is a powerful woman in their own industry? Because I wanted people to relate. That was the whole book, right? It's about relatability and something that, you know, you may not be able to be Martha Stewart, but you could be the CEO of a small business that you start, or you could just be killing it in your home, and Mm -hmm. you could be doing a podcast Mm -hmm. in your home. I mean, you can choose your path. So I think the piece of advice that I loved the most was a woman named Gemma Burgess, who's a screenwriter, and she's... just an amazing woman, and I asked her about the negotiation chapter, you know, have you ever been through anything that you want to talk about? And the interesting thing about the case studies, I didn't send them the chapters. I just sent them the chapter heading and asked them to relate a story that they they had been through, something that they had seen in their own life. And Gemma said, you know, when I was in my 20s, I used to ask any woman in her 30s to go out for lunch or coffee. Everybody likes to talk about themselves. And she's like, I was so desperate for information at the time. She said that one woman gave her the best advice ever, which was whenever you go into negotiation, make them wince. And I thought it was just the most genius thing, because if you think about it, you go in fearful of what you're going to say, right? I'm going to negotiate. I'm scared. Make them wince. Go big. And the funny thing, throughout this entire book... I have an older brother and a younger brother and a ton of guy friends. And I told them this, and they were all sort of like, yeah, duh. I told women, and they were like, this is literally— the nugget I've been waiting for my whole life. And I just realized, you know, half the population already makes them wince when they go in for a negotiation. And even in my own office, I see it. Women never come in and ask for double their salary. I had a guy once who came in. I hadn't even offered him the job. And by the way, I had no intention of offering him the job. And he sent me a preemptive email to tell me what he would require. And oh, by the way, the title wasn't enough. And I just remember being like, good Lord. But then also, wow, look at what a different way to come at this. Because all of a sudden now I'm thinking, thinking, well, if I did this, I would have to get him more money because he made me think about it. And I had not up until that point thought about it. So make them
0: wince. (laughs) I remember my very first job out of college. I remember where I was. I was like sitting on my bed, like my old fashioned had like my white, berry stuffed animal like this is like so long ago that room has been redone it's like at my mom's house anyway but i remember like talking to my first boss on the phone and asking for something that i thought was a lot of money which was was not even like industry standard for like my entry level job but it just sounded like a lot i don't even know where i got this number and i remember and they gave me something even lower than that. But I was like, okay, it was close. And I remember calling my dad, and I was like, well, I asked for X. And he's like, oh, God. (laughs) Like, literally, I'll never forget the disappointment in his voice. Like, how could, you know, no, you can't start there. (laughs) He's like, make them win. Yeah, I mean, I was like, oh, my gosh. They were like, this is the cheapest hire ever. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, so that was all super useful for public speakers, you also have a lot of really great advice. And not everyone is going to be talking in front of thousands of people trying yeah. to raise money, but even something simple, even speaking to your class as a class mom or mm-hmm. speaking to you know, your whole team at work or whatever, you have a lot of really great tips. One of the tips I liked the most was to make the audience part of your performance and talk to them like they're your friends. Yes, so you can tell a little more about that, please. Well, I
1: think it all comes from this belief that when you get on stage, everybody sitting in the audience is against you. I teach all the charity auctioners for Christie's. And so when I train them or when I'm sort of trying them out to see whether or not they'll become charity auctioneers, one of the first things that I do is ask them to tell a story. And you should see how quickly people that I know and have known for 10, 15 years fall apart in front of me. And not me, but, you know, 10 people. They start shaking, their voice is shaking, they're flipping their hair back and forth. And so what I always say to them is, Just remember that the audience wants you to succeed. We are here to support you. We are not here to make you scared. And if you are nervous, message that to us. Tell us that you're a nervous speaker. Because think about it from the audience's perspective. Does anybody want to sit there listening to somebody who's stumbling through a speech Of course not. They want you to be articulate. They want you to be enjoying what you're doing. And so that's sort of the first tip that I talk about when I'm I'm discussing that. And one way to make yourself feel very comfortable if you're a nervous public speaker is immediately point out something that you see in front of you in the audience. Because it helps your nerves because you feel like you're talking to someone. So, you know, I was doing a talk at the Charleston Library Society last week. And this gentleman in the back row, you know, 745 at night, yawned halfway through. And I said, oh, sir, I'm so sorry that I'm not entertaining enough for you. I will try to really ramp it up for the second part of this speech. And again, it was just kind of acknowledging it. He laughed, the audience laughed. It kind of woke them all back up. And I think it made them a little fearful that maybe I would say <laughs> something about them, which kept them on their toes, which is always a good thing. But just giving yourself the ability to step over that line make people feel comfortable in your space. It's what makes public speaking fun. It doesn't have to be this formal presentation. And frankly, you will see the audience really engage more if they feel like there's a chance they may be called out while you're up
0: there. Excellent. One of the most helpful parts for me also as a busy mom in New York City (laughs) and running around, not that this is New York City specific, but was how you structure your time each day to help you accomplish your goals. And you do it so thoughtfully. You create a daily schedule that you call your roadmap and you really think it through. I try to do this occasionally, like, even just to plot out, like, how are we going to get everybody picked up from school at the same time tomorrow? And sometimes at night, I'm, like, too wiped out to 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 think it through. yeah. So you do it at the beginning of the week sometimes? I do it, yeah. So tell me the... Tell me how you do it and what the what we should do to follow you your great it. example. <laughs> <laughs> so I start Sunday. because I right that. feel like, like that. people
1: always say to me, oh, well, the Sunday night's scary. As the kids have to go back to school. It's all this stuff. And I, a lot of times I think to myself, it's because you really haven't thought through your week. It seems overwhelming because you haven't been proactive about it, which frankly is like anything in life. It seems scarier when it's being thrown at you versus you taking the first step. So Sunday night, I sit down with a calendar. And by the way, this is a paper calendar. This is not my iPhone. This is not a... And I, this is nothing technological. This is literally a paper calendar where I fill in the numbers just for the week. And I write down exactly what's taking place that day, every day for the entire week so that my husband can see it, so that I can see it, so that our nanny can see it who watches our little ones, so that there's no ambiguity about who's going where, or what's going to happen. And then for myself, over the course of the day, I print out my calendar at work the minute I arrive, and I make notes so that I know exactly what's happening throughout the day. And if something gets rearranged, then it's very easy for me to sort of you know, put an arrow to something else and quickly email and say, like, I'm not going to be there quite on time, but I could be there within this time period, or frankly, just cancel the meeting. So I think as a more than anything, as a mom, because of the logistics, I mean, Zibi knows this, I have three children as well. For me, it's the logistics and making sure that all of those things are down on a calendar well in advance of when I need to be there. And also just giving myself the flexibility to not be like, I have to be there at 8.15. I'm going to arrive at 8.15. Because we all know with children, you know, I still have one in diapers. And honestly, that's the biggest outlier because you kind of never know when you're going to have to change a diaper. You're walking out of the door and all of a sudden you have to run back in or, you know, in my case, a lot of times I'll be out somewhere and then I realize I don't have a diaper. (laughs) So then I have to recruit a random person (laughs) who might have a diaper, which don't ever be afraid to ask. I've done that many times. But I think all of these things, it's just giving yourself a time period, you know, within which you are hoping to achieve something. But then also don't beat yourself up if it doesn't happen. A lot of times things can be pivoted into a different day or frankly even a different week. And we all set ourselves up to have these strict schedules when in fact it's not feasible. So just don't beat yourself up. I think that's actually my biggest time management,
0: (laughs) my big time management skill. And in your schedule, you always carve out time, uninterrupted time with your kids after work, before you go to an auction. Mm -hmm. No phone. No phone. No phone. Like, you're in it. No
1: phone, no TV. That's us, like, playing Uno on the floor. And I feel like, especially as a working mom, you know, that is, that's what keeps me from the guilt, which is so pervasive. And I I say that as a working mom. I think stay-at-home moms have it as well. I mean, it's just this, am I doing enough? You're doing enough. You've had your children, you see them, they know you love them. Like you're doing enough. But I also feel like because I am not in my home during the day, especially with my little one, I do want them to understand that every single night when I am in town and not traveling, there will be time when I walk in the door where I do not have my phone out, I am not checking Instagram, I am not sending work emails, I am literally hanging out with them on the floor, helping my daughter do homework or really playing UNO. That's kind of our thing right now. And then putting the baby next to us with beads so that she doesn't jump on top of the UNO pack, which which she does almost every single
0: night, which ends the game and signals that it's time for bed. And do you also carve out time with your husband? I was wondering where the spouse sort of fits into the roadmap of the week. Yeah. I feel like
1: Chris, Chris is my husband, Chris and I are very conscious about like our mornings are spent together. We both get up at the same time. We really make sure that whatever we're doing for the kids, it's sort of like in the kitchen at the same time. But at night, any time that I'm home or he's home, even after an auction, we just kind of sit and talk for a while. Because I mean, I know in the best-case scenario, we could have a date night every single night. That's not realistic in the life that we live right now. So we try to sort of carve out that time in small pockets. And then if we feel like we're not getting enough time together, that's when we sort of sit down and we're like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, we're going to a wedding together this weekend for three days instead of just two. Because I've been on a book tour, and I've been kind of insane with the book. Having a great time, but at the same time, the relationship is also very important. Because it is the one thing, especially with young kids, that seems to get shoved aside very easily, and you do have to make time for it.
0: The other day, I actually sent my husband a paperless post invitation just for an hour. It wasn't even a dinner. Oh, that's so sweet. I was like, I can do from 8.15 to 9.15 tonight. (laughs) Let's see you there. But from 8.15 to 9.15, there will be no phones. Yeah. Like, you bring the drinks and snacks or whatever, and we can talk and— then we'll go back to doing whatever we have to do. Yeah, and I think sometimes, too, a call
1: during the day instead of a text is a really nice thing. I mean, if my husband calls, sometimes the immediate thought is, oh my God, one of our children has fallen off a jungle gym, which happened last week. He has a broken collarbone. Um, Yeah, no, it happens. He's taking it in stride. But I do think that, You know, just even having that point of connectivity where you pick up the phone and you're like, hey, what's going on? Nothing. Okay, great. Bye. You know, at least you hear each other's voice and it just kind of reconnects you because it is tough with so much going on. But it, it is one thing that I think that can easily be
0: done. You also wrote in the book that you, this is a quote, you truly believe that life places things in front of you at the right time, but it's only when you're open to these opportunities that things really start to happen for you. Absolutely. What's an example of this? I think, I mean, writing the book for me is
1: the perfect example of this. I was waiting around for somebody else to write a book for me for many years because I I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to do the work. And I had a New York Times reporter who years before, maybe 10 years before, had written sort of a small fluff piece for Crane's business about, at the time I was head of events, she called me out of the blue, I mean, literally out of the blue. And I still have the same number because I've been at the company for 20 years. And she said, hi, this is Alex Strauss. I wrote an article about you 10 years ago. Is there any chance that you would be willing to do an article that that I just pitched for the New York Times about how you work during the day and take charity auctions at night And she said, you know, do you still do that? And I was like, I do still do that, but I actually am pregnant with my third child. So I really have a limited time, well, a limited window. I only have another month of this, and really I only have one more auction between now and your deadline. And so... She came to the auction. They shot photographs the whole day for the piece. And at the end of the day, she asked me, as I'm sort of exhausted after being in heels, which I probably would not have been if the New York Times had not <laughs> been chronicling the piece, she asked me what I do at the end of the at the end of the night. And I said, "Well, I don't actually, turn on any kind of screen because I'm so wired. So I either read a book or I write this book that I've been writing. But the writing of the book was a little bit of a, it wasn't entirely driving. I'd written a chapter and I'd been sending it to my best friend's agent who kept saying, this is great. You have a book in you, just not this book. Okay. <laughs> so I wasn't really far along in my book writing process. And it was something about reading that in the transcript that to the point, like life gives you these opportunities. Do you take them or not? I I called my best friend and I said, what do I do? And I actually already knew the answer. I just needed her to say it out loud. And she said, you'd be an idiot if you didn't get your proposal done in time for this piece to run. And I said, you know, you're right. I have to get it done. And so the piece luckily was bumped. I had the baby two weeks later. The piece was bumped until later that year. And I completely forgot about it between that first sort of moment and then when I was about to have the transcript printed. And about six weeks before, I emailed her and said, by the way, is this piece ever going to run? And she said, oh, yeah, it's running in six weeks. And You know, it's funny with timing, because Mm -hmm. if it had happened, if it had gone out in April as as it was supposed to, I would have had a baby. I would never have done anything about it. But at that point, it was October, or September, and it seemed like, it didn't seem quite as daunting. I mean, the baby was six months old, not a day old. And so I really poured myself into it. I had round trips to California, just day trips to California, one after another. And I wrote, just nonstop on the plane. And the funny thing was, when I sent it back to my best friend's agent, she said to me, in all caps, This is it. But I actually already knew it before I sent it because it felt like exactly what was supposed to be happening at that time. It was just that life had placed it in front of me and I had grabbed it and run with it. And
0: that's why. It worked. So what was the first book that they didn't think would be successful and how did you change? Like, what was the difference? What The difference? So (laughs) she'd asked,
1: you know, one of the things that my agent said to me the entire time throughout the writing process was remember that you work for Christie's. So that's going to be so highbrow that most people won't even really know how to relate. You grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana, talk to us about how you got to this job. Were your parents art collectors? No. Did you know anything about auction? No. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about how you got there. And make this book for every woman. Mm -hmm. So I had started out, my original introduction was about a lemonade stand, and I'm sure you're all glad that that's not what it ended up being. But talking about selling, and how I loved to sell even as a child, and how I used to put up this lemonade stand and recruit all of my neighbors, because I realized sitting in front of a lemonade stand gets you nothing, but you have your friend with a broken arm out there, you can really garner (laughs) some extra change. And so that that was originally the chapter that I'd sent her, that she was like, this is good. And so, now you're going to have your son with a broken collarbone out on yeah, the auction stage. At get the ready. UG, you know? <laughs> it's coming, New York. Get ready. I'm like, if only I can keep him in that cast yeah. for long enough. But when I wrote the first chapter, I was thinking to myself, you know, the question I always get is, do you get nervous before you get on stage? So what if I brought the reader in through the first 10 seconds leading on to the auction stage? What does that look like? What do I see? And how do I get from the person... Who's seated at dinner, and then five minutes later is on stage in front of a thousand people. Like, what is that transition and what does that look like? And once I started writing through that, mm-hmm. it just felt like a completely different story, the story that I was meant to tell, because it was different than a lemonade stand that everybody had been to throughout their life. It was something that was, people were walking into this room,
0: and then I could back into the story about how I got there. So that's kind of how it happened. So it seemed like throughout the book, you're just incredibly driven, right? Mm-hmm. You know what you want. You set your sights on something and you accomplish it. And I feel like somehow you've managed just to do this with this great book, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you, you know, you wanted the you tell the story of how diligent you are about getting not even diligent, what's the word? I'm sorry. Tenacious. <laughs> Tenacious about even getting the job at Christie's to begin with. Yeah. All of it. Like every step of the way. And I feel like with writing, people are like, well, let's see what happens. You know, sometimes it's like a process, but I feel like your approach to everything is very Targeted, like, yeah. does that ever get you in trouble in any way? Like, daily.
1: <laughs> I
0: mean, you know, and I and I say this too
1: about Instagram. You know, I have a lot of friends who are sort of like, oh, and then you did this on Instagram. I'm like, remember, high gloss, right? This is a very beautiful curated image of what's taking place day to day. And I say too about the auctions. I mean, people see that I take auctions with Madis- at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen because I started posting on Instagram. I think two years ago. I also was an auctioneer for 14 years before that. And if I could show you real time the number of auctions that I went to that were so painfully, like painfully hilarious, where I would slink off stage and go out the back exit because I didn't want to see anyone because nobody paid attention. We didn't reach the goal. All of these things were what taught me how to be in a place where I feel confident on any stage, no matter what the size. But I I try to message that, too. It's it's the same thing with the book. It's like, you know, I had sent Meg that chapter, but I'd also sent her other things over the years, Meg being my agent, Mm -hmm. who I got through my best friend, by the way. This is not some agent who picked me out of a crowd. Like, literally, my best friend handed me her agent's information, and I kind of stalked her. But there were many things that I sent her that she was just sort of like— Oh, sometimes she just didn't email back, you know? <laughs> so yes, I do have drive. There's no question about it. But there's so many missteps that go into everything and every success. And ultimately, I think, much like Hydrox, that's why it feels so good. Yeah. You know, when a good auction takes place and I walk off stage, I think to myself sometimes, that would have been a disaster if i had taken it 10 years ago because the crowd was loud and i would not have been confident enough to pull that room or i would not have been able i would have been fearful of them feeling like i was being bossy or too sort of sharp or something like that and i've just learned how to really control a room through practice
0: and now you've had the practice of writing this book which you did at night right didn't you say I did you- this at night
1: so this was probably the most intense period of my life because the book sold in October in a week. And remember what I said, at this point I had two chapters, which were good chapters, unlike the one lemonade stand chapter that nobody wanted to buy. But the two chapters, that was it. And so they wanted the book by April 1st. And so we finished the contract in December of 2017, and they wanted it by April 1st of 2018. And I think if you are truly a writer and this is what you do, you have a method. I had no method. I had nothing. I really didn't know what I was doing. So it was kind of like the chapters. I'll just start writing and see where this ends up. Um, there, were, I had a picture that I showed my friends right after I finished and, and handed in the proposal of, I'd taken post-it notes where I'd put the chapter titles and stuck them on the wall because I didn't know how to story arc. So I was like, okay, well, I started this when I was 21, so clearly this needs to be further along because this is present day. But, you know, it was just sort of making up things as I went along. But the one consistent part that I did that if if I ever write a book again, I will say was very helpful, was instead of looking at it as a book or writing these broad chapters, I figured I had to write 60,000 words because I only had 10,000 words written by January 15. I said, okay, if I have 60 days and I write 1,000 words a day religiously, 1,000 words every single day come hell or high water— I will hit my target, I will get there by that time. But if I don't, then I won't. So let's just see if we can make that happen. And you know, before you know it, day one happens, I start on the subway in the morning. I I start on my iPhone after I (laughs) drop the kids off at school, sort of anything that came to mind. And I would forward it to work. If I had any spare time at work, anything came to mind, I would just jot it down on that, send it back to myself on the subway. And then I would write when I got home. So if the kids, I put the kids down at seven, they, you know, they like bounce back up and down a couple of times. But really I would go into my room around 7.45 and I would say to my husband, do not come in here. Do not, I don't need anything. I will be out as soon as I'm finished with my thousand words. And it would take about an hour to an hour and a half, depending on, you know, how I was feeling. And if I got into a groove and I wrote more, then it meant that the next day I had to write less, which was exciting. (laughs) So if I made 1,200, I only had to write 800 words the next day. But it really was amazing to just chip away at it. And I have all these, you know, chapter titles with the number of words that I'd written in each chapter where I'd mark off. And probably, I guess it was maybe like, Three weeks before the book was due, I started using a calculator to figure out how many words I had. And I realized I was actually getting close. And it was just this unbelievable feeling. I mean, when I finally finished the book, I was on a round trip to San Diego for 20 hours and I cried solidly for 15 minutes after I finished, because I was so stressed.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And the woman next to me was like, are you okay? I was like, I'm not okay. I am really stressed out. But then it's done, you know, and it's, I mean, that really feels like my fourth child. Wow. <laughs> so That's really impressive. It was exciting, but it's not, it's not something that anybody couldn't do. You just have to sort of set something that seems attainable as opposed to looking at it as a, I have to write a book.
0: This is like your whole thing in life. This is yeah. how like everything seems achievable to you. Yeah. I'm like so inspired by the way you look at everything. Like if you just break things down and figure out how to get there, you will get there. You
1: will get there. Yeah.
0: Like there was no no part of you that was like, maybe it'll be late.
1: No. And actually when I handed in, the editor said to me, I can't believe you turned this in on time. And I said, I didn't know I had an option. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it was also so good because I didn't want it hanging over my head anymore. I wanted it to be done, you know? And and I was so excited to give it to her because I was so excited to not have to work on it anymore. I didn't want to write a thousand words anymore a day. I wanted to just have my days back. But the funny thing is, and this is this is true to my parents. I said to my mom, and I finished the book. You know, I did it all, and she goes, "Well, you're going to have all this extra time. You should start writing the next one." I'm like, "Oh my god, can I just have a break, please? Just a short break." But <laughs> do do you want to write another book? Or not really? I mean, I feel like now I know what to how to how, do it. How, yeah. how to do it. It feels less. It feels less daunting. You know, I wouldn't mind having a small break before writing another one, but I do want, you know, we've been talking about a young girl adaptation, The Most Powerful Girl in the Room is You.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: Which is fun. Actually, a friend of mine was in Nashville with her daughter. And her daughter's in third grade, and they've been listening to it, the Audible, in her car. And she said to me, her daughter was about to do her first guitar performance, and she said, hand to God, she said to me, Mommy, can we listen to Lydia's chapter on public speaking again? And I started to cry when I read the text, because can you imagine that this little girl felt like she'd heard something that was going to inspire her and make her less nervous on stage. I mean, it really it brings me to tears now. It's just, it's amazing to see how people take a book and, and use it to really make themselves feel inspired and powerful, which is what I wanted. Oh, yeah, I
0: love that. It was good. <laughs> now I'm going to play that chapter for my older daughter. I know. <laughs> so you've already given me a lot of advice for aspiring writers, but do you have anything else that you would tell someone starting out or who's always had a lofty goal of writing a book? Just do it.
1: Do it. Find your angle. That's what Meg, my agent, said to me many times. Just find your angle. And once you find your angle, the words will come out of you. And I think that a lot of people sort of spin their wheels about, what could I write about? It's like you have to find the place to enter. And once you get in it, then it helps inform the entire book. But don't be scared of it. I mean, it seems scary to write a book, but look around you. There are books everywhere. People do it all the time. So if you have it in you and you want to try, then try it. And again, set yourself an attainable goal, you know, get it done by the summer, write a hundred words a day, write 200 words a day, you know, just make it not as daunting. And that way I think it's just easier to achieve everything. It's like running a marathon. Don't run 26.2 miles your first day out, run one mile and then see if you can do two.
0: I love that. I feel like 100 words a day might be more my speed at yeah, this point. <laughs> but 100 words
1: a day would get a book in a year, right? Year, year and a half. Wow. So yeah, 100 words a day. 100
0: words a day, I like it. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on, Moms. Don't have time to read books. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun. <laughs> this episode has been brought to you by Boombox Gifts, memory boxes filled with personal messages and photos from friends and family for your next special occasion. Boomboxgifts.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Uh...